0: Thank you, Jordan. Great job. Take your Bibles, turn with me this evening. Genesis chapter 25. I sat there, I discovered that all my pages were, every other page was out of order. That could have been real interesting, if not heretical, before we finished. In our last study in Genesis chapter 24, we learned how Abraham had sent his servant on a quest to find a bride for Isaac. He had some prerequisites, and that was that she could not be a Canaanite and that she must be from his own people. That study ended as we witnessed the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. In the course of time, God continued to provide completion of his promise. It's interesting and maybe somewhat surprising to note the story of Isaac is basically skipped. The biblical record focuses on Abraham and then upon Isaac's son Jacob and upon Jacob's son Joseph. And so tonight we're looking at and being introduced to t- Isaac's two sons, Esau and Jacob. If you have your outline from the, this morning, from the bulletin, you'll notice the first thing here is, our, is a problem pregnancy. In verse 19 of chapter 25, it says this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, and the daughter of Thule, the Cyrenian, of Padanaram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now given the promise uh, of a mighty nation through his descendants, and God's miraculous provision of Isaac and the divine selection of Rebekah as his wife. You might think everything was going to go good now. Things were going to finally work out. That uh, everything would be easy from this point on. But in fact, Isaac and Rebekah have difficulty having children. When several years went by without <clears throat> children they turned to the Lord. They pled their case with the Lord and they trusted that he would be faithful to his promise. Now, a comparison of verse number 20, which says that Isaac was 40 years old when he and Rebekah married, and verse 26, which says that Isaac was 60 when the boys were born, revealed that he kept praying for this particular matter for 20 years. To his credit, Isaac did not resort to the same kind of tactics that his father Abraham did with Hagar, the slave girl. Verse 21 says, Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. The result was that Rebekah's barrenness was ended by the direct intervention of the Lord. It says, And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The present application, of course, is that people today still face lots of problems, such as financial struggles, sickness, family tensions. We could go on and on and on. But whatever the trouble you face, the question is, where do you turn for your help? Some people turn to a bottle, be it a prescription bottle or some other kind of bottle. Some people turn to a credit card To distract them, at least for 30 days until the bill comes in. To a psychic, to a scheme, a new relationship. Or do we finally look to the Lord? Isn't it true for the most part, though, that we view turning to the Lord as a last resort? If we're honest, we have to admit that more often than not... We turn to our own schemes and devices and plans before we turn to the Lord. Why is that? Well, you might cope by saying, well, I just didn't want to bother God. But in truth, I think it's because we don't want to depend on God. Isaac's prayer is answered, but I want you to note that the next sentence begins with an ominous little three-letter word. But, but, we see a powerful struggle beginning in verse 22, but the children struggled together within her and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? And so she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two people shall be separated from your body, one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger in verse 22, we look at the pain. Isaac's prayer is answered, but he gets even more than he prayed for. He gets not a child, but you notice he gets children. And even more important, these children struggle with each other inside Rebecca's womb. Rebecca's joy quickly turned to pain. The Hebrew here is rather graphic. It says that the children smashed themselves inside her. Rebecca literally felt as if her womb had become a battlefield. And in pain and perplexity, she, like her husband, turned to God for answers. Now, Rebecca was no wilting flower here, but the struggle within her was so great that it causes her to ask literally, if everything is all right, why am I feeling this way? The question has within it the meaning of, Why is this happening to me? She doesn't understand why this pregnancy is so painful and even questions if there is any reason to continue living because it is so painful. Verse 23 gives us the prophecy. Her pain causes her to seek an answer from the Lord who gives her an explanation in the form of a four-line poem of two couplets. The second line in each couplet amplifies the first line. Her pregnancy is so problematic that the reason is that it has become a a battlefield that has far-reaching implications. Two nations are in her womb. They literally crush each other in their struggle for supremacy. That struggle goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 where two lines are destined for conflict which would proceed from Eve. The children of Eve and the children of the serpent. The conflict is seen in Genesis 4, 8, where Cain kills his brother Abel. And now these two children are facing off inside their mother's womb. And two nations would proceed from them. A struggle begins between these two brothers before they are even born. There is rivalry here, literally, that begins here and continues throughout the remainder of their lives. And even into the lives of their descendants. Jacob and Esau were brothers who became the heads of nations. Esau's descendants became the nation of Edom, and Jacob's family obviously becomes the nation of Israel. The most troublesome part of this passage is in verse 23. It says in the latter part of that, one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. God told Rebekah that the two nations would come from her twin boys and that the older, Esau, (coughs) would serve the younger, Jacob. This is on the question of and the problem of election. Jacob was chosen by God. He was chosen not because of merit, not because of good works. Remember, the twins that are at this point still unborn. The selection of Jacob individually and the Israelites corporately was solely a divine prerogative. The ninth chapter of the book of Romans is the New Testament commentary on the birth of Jacob and Esau. In Romans chapter 9, and I'd encourage you to turn there, Romans chapter 9, verse 10 through 13, we find these words. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger... And it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Well, that just made it a whole lot easier, didn't it? That, If anything, that's a little bit more difficult. Verse 13 is especially troublesome to us today. But we have to understand the hatred of God here in a relative sense. Compared with the love that God had for Jacob and ultimately Israel he hated Esau and the Edomites. Jesus also used that relative use of hate when he said in Luke chapter 14 and verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Obviously, God is not Jesus is not trying to get us to hate our parents. ...or to hate our brothers and sisters. Again, it is in the relative sense, compared to our love for the Lord, everything else should almost seem like hate. Donald Gray Barnhouse stated it this way. The text flatly states that the choice of God was not dependent on their birth or their character. The choice was in the heart of God and based entirely on his sovereign authority... He decided that Jacob was the child who was to carry the line of the Messiah and be heir to the blessing. And in the same way, he determined that Esau was not to carry the line, not inherit the blessing. This was God's divine purpose. The works and characters of individuals had nothing to do with the choice. Undeniably, this goes against our human idea of fairness and justice. But God offers no explanations for his choice, and he certainly offers no apologies either. The third thing we notice is the prophesied birth. Verse 24. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, and he was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, and so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore, she bore them. The story of the birth of Esau and Jacob are the first recorded twins in the Bible. But there is nothing identical about these two boys. They are different in almost every conceivable way. Note how different Esau and Jacob were. They looked different, even though they were twins. They had different temperaments, different interests, even different values. The firstborn, Esau, liked the outdoors. He was big, strong, and hairy. He was, to borrow a term, a man's man or as we in the south would say he was a good old boy if he lived today he would dress in carhartt chew tobacco drive a jacked up four wheel drive pickup truck he was a man's man despite his fat his faults esau was probably more likeable than his brother jacob jacob on the other hand was a kind of a cagey fella He was a man who liked the comforts of being inside. He would be more comfortable in the white-collar world, dressed in a suit and tie, driving a Beamer. His name, Jacob, means heel-catcher because he actually caught a hold of his brother's foot. The name came to mean deceiver. One thing that I want us to take note of in the differences in these two young men is what this biblical story does in the face of our culture who wants to believe that if children go wrong, it's because of their early environment. Think about it. These two boys were born at the same time, in the same place, to the same parents. Raised in the same home, given the same opportunities, and yet one of them sets out on his own misguided notions of what it was to serve God. And the other is only interested in pleasing himself. The fourth thing we see this evening is parental favoritism. Verse 27, and so the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents, and and Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. If you have kids, then you probably understand what I'm going to say, and that is that parenting is not an exact science. In fact... When we brought Nikki home from the hospital, they didn't give us any kind of handbook to tell us what to do. Christian parents are, at best, imperfect instruments. But it is nonetheless tragic when we read those words in the, verse 28, Isaac loved Esau, but he, for he had a taste for gain, but Rebekah loved Jacob. You know, it must have done something to Esau to grow up with his father's love but without his mother's. And conversely, it must have done something to Jacob to grow up with his mother's love and approval but without his father's. This favoritism, in fact, sets off a cycle of family dysfunction that carried over into the second and third generations when parents play favorites with their children it breeds bitterness and hatred rebecca's fondness for jacob pitted her against her husband isaac and it led to deceiving him in order to help jacob against esau jacob later played favorites with his own sons So much so that they set out to kill his favorite son, Joseph. In verse 29, we come to the premeditated plan. I think we need to understand one little bit of biblical background in order to fully understand this story. And that is the whole concept of the birthright. We don't have anything in our culture that even approaches that. To an oldest son, the birthright was the most prized possession. According to Deuteronomy 21, 17, the oldest son was given two distinct honors just due to the fact that he was born first. Number one, as the firstborn, he got a double inheritance. Double inheritance. No matter how many other siblings there were, he got a double inheritance. And secondly, he was considered the, head, considered the head of the family after the death of his father. The birthright could be transferred and it could be sold, but only for something of great value. Normally, a firstborn son would never under any circumstances consider selling the birthright because it guaranteed both his future security, and his future leadership of the family. We come to ensnaring Esau. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with the same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was Edom. Edom means red. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. And so he swore to him and sold him his birthright sold his birthright to Jacob. I think there's one thing that we have to assume here, even though it's not specifically spelled out in the text. I think we have to assume That Jacob had been scheming in his mind, looking for an opportunity to talk his brother out of his birthright. I think it's safe to assume that this plan just didn't pop into his mind right off the bat, fully worked out. This was a premeditated idea waiting to come to fruition at just the right moment all these years of him of jacob witnessing his father favor his brother he has been dreaming of a way to steal his birthright away for himself in jacob's favor we have to at least say he saw that the birthright was something worth having but the way he gained it was ugly in that he took advantage of Esau's weaknesses to get from him something he couldn't have obtained any other way. One has to also suspect this is not the first time that this particular conversation has been had. Perhaps on other occasions, Jacob has sounded him out. Hey, Esau, how much would you take for your birthright? If Esau had at any moment during those conversations flat out said, my birthright is not for sale at any price, it would have probably ended there. But somehow he had left the door open, a crack, and Jacob could tell that it wasn't all that important to Esau. We might step back and be tempted to say, well, but didn't God promise to bless the younger son over the older son? Yes, it is true. In verse 23, before the twins were even born, God revealed this truth to Rebekah. That's what makes this action even more inexcusable. If God had promised it, and he did, then Jacob didn't need to trick Esau out of it. God didn't need his help. He would have accomplished it and gave it to Jacob in his own way, in his own time. Now, Jacob was right to want the birthright. He was wrong to want the birthright for the personal advantages that it would bring to him. He was wrong to take it in the way that he did. In future chapters, God's going to deal with this deceiver by giving him a dose of his own medicine. Later, Jacob will be outwitted at the bargaining table by his uncle, Laban, his future father-in-law, who will cheat him. Jacob was always scheming to work things out to his own advantage. He needed to learn that God could work things out if he would trust him. He did, but it was a long, hard lesson. Verse 34 gives us the exchange of a birthright. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils, and then he ate and drank, and arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau's life is the story of a man who sold his birthright, which not only included material benefits and family privileges, but also spiritual blessings as well and for what? A bowl of soup. It says he ate and drank and rose up on his way. Didn't seem to have a second thought about it. He did it. It felt good. And only much later did he come to regret it. What is perhaps the most bizarre is to contemplate that Esau exchanged his birthright for a bowl of stew, something so transitory that just a few hours later he'll be hungry again. Which brings us to the point, what are we willing to trade in order to get what we want in life? What kind of deal are you willing to make to get to where you really want to go in life? How much are you willing to give up your family, your friends, your marriage, your integrity, your purity, your testimony. Verse 34 says that Esau despised his birthright. And despise means to count as nothing, or to treat with contempt. And we're really not left to wonder what this means, because in Hebrews chapter twelve, we find it is spelled out in no uncertain terms. Hebrews chapter twelve And verse 16 says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. So we're told that Esau was an immoral fornicator and godless or profane man. Yet as we read Genesis chapter 25, we find no place that says that Esau acted like an immoral and godless man. He never curses. How can he be guilty of blasphemy? All he did was make a deal for a bowl of soup. He ate it and he went his way. How's that godless? The answer is that in the Bible, profanity is an attitude, not just an action. You don't have to swear to be profane. You don't have to declare yourself an atheist to be godless. You can be godless and come to church every Sunday morning. Every day, you're trading your life, your soul for something. You're trading one day of your life away. And the question, of course, is for what? Life is a process of trading one thing for another. We're all given a certain amount of time and ability, which we exchange to gain other things, such as money and food and shelter and relationships and leisure and pleasure. The scary thing is it's easy to fritter your life away exchanging your time and abilities for things that really don't matter or maybe even worse for things that can cause you great harm someone has said that the difference between school and life is that in school you're taught a lesson and then you're given a test in life you're given a test what teaches you a lesson Esau <clears throat> Might have had a lot of excuses for his behavior excuses for disregarding those privileges. He could have blamed God after all He could say, "God predestined me." The Lord had told his mother while he was still in the womb that he would serve the younger. He might have blamed his parents for their errors in raising him, as we have noted in verse twenty eight it said that his Father loved Esau, but the mother loved Jacob. They did, without a doubt, make some serious mistakes. Yet their mistakes don't absolve Esau of his own wrong choice. In reality, Esau's decision was his own. Now, our parents may have made some parenting mistakes, even terrible mistakes. But that doesn't mean that we have to repeat those mistakes. We really can't blame the way our parents treated us. They may have acted piously on Sunday and like pagans the rest of the week. They may have been abusive. They may have not loved us as they should have. They may have even played favorites but god holds us accountable that if we despise our spiritual heritage and walk away from him we give an account ourselves perhaps what is the most frightening about esau's impulsive decisions are the lasting consequences hebrews 12:17 says and afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. You know, as Esau later looked back on his decision, I think he felt badly about what he'd given up. He could have seen that that decision was foolish and hasty. He even thought that maybe he should have held on, not went for immediate gratification. But he was simply unwilling to turn from his selfish ways to God. He later wanted what God could give him, but he didn't want God. That was the problem. Because that would mean yielding his life to God. And that seemed to be too big a price for Esau to pay. It means that Esau came to the place that he saw that what he'd done was wrong, but he he was not ready, willing, or able to make the necessary changes. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for the day and thank you for the lessons that your word gives us. Sometimes we see a lot of Esau in ourselves and sometimes we see a lot of Jacob in ourselves. We're willing to give up on those things that we should hold on to, spiritual advantages and privileges. Sometimes we're like Jacob, we want to manipulate things into working our way. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see that your way is for us to depend on you. Forgive us, Lord, when we fail you. Give us strength, Lord, to make the changes that we need to make in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.